evening, everyone, and welcome to uh, the early stages of the 17th annual season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon, and it's our privilege to curate and to present these community-wide events. So thank you for being here. Um, I always do like to ask at the outset if anyone has never been to a Faith and Life event in the past. If so, if you're willing to raise your hand. Hi. Good particular welcome to all of you. We're glad you're here. Um, <clears throat> as I said, this is the 17th season of the, of the series. Um, those of you who are familiar with it will know that over those 17 years, we have brought in <clears throat> a wide variety of types of speakers. Uh, the table stakes is that people are Christians and willing to talk in some way about how their faith informs what they do, but they certainly have not been professional theologians by, by a long shot. We have had doctors and lawyers and um, politicians. We did that actually once, believe it or not. Um, authors, a lot of authors, counselors, um, business executives, nonprofit leaders. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to get a, a wide array of voices talking about um, different ways of understanding the Christian faith. Tonight, we are delighted to have someone who is an author and a speaker and a journalist. You can read a little about her in the bio in the program. I do always like to ask our speakers before they come out here if there's something a little off the beaten trail or quirky about their bio that people might not know about. When I asked our speaker tonight, she said, well, I'm not really a particularly quirky person. Um, but she did, after some thought, volunteer that her mother's entire family is from Green Bay. Um, I hope that doesn't mean you will <laughs> chase her off of the stage. Um, she also volunteered that while she was at college, which was at Marquette, um, apparently someone actually dated her precisely so that he could get some tickets to a Packers <laughs> game. Um, so that strikes me as somewhat interesting at least. Um, we, we booked these a long time in advance. Uh, we have been looking forward to having her with us. Will you please join me in welcoming Colleen Carroll Campbell. Thank you, I take it. Well, I sound a little boring, don't I? But, um, you know, there's more to that story. It was, it was more like at the end of the relationship, he called and said, you know those season tickets you said your grandfather willed to the family and that your uncle? You know, is there any way we could get so anyway uh, it, I did not give them away I didn't have that authority but my mom uh, moved to an assisted living in St. Louis recently and I was cleaning out her apartment and the one thing I knew I couldn't part with was that massive cheese head that she's had for years so she actually has that in her assisted living room now I know that um, that puts me a bit at odds with some of you but I hope you'll you'll forgive me for that so anyway uh, it's been a while since I lived in Wisconsin um, and thank you so much, Pastor Tim, for having me here. And uh, it, was, it was funny because I used to be so hardy, and now coming from St. Louis, it was, I think it was almost 60 today. So <laughs> I tried to find my warmest dress, and I thought, wow, I have really, I've really gone soft in the last, uh, <clears throat> since I graduated from college. So <laughs> if you see me shivering up here, that's why. But uh, anyway, it's great to be here with you tonight. I'm so glad to be part of this series, and I'm so grateful for all of you who took the time to come out. I know it's not easy to clear the decks on a busy fall weeknight and come out for an event like this. And I think the fact that you did, that you're here, shows that you take seriously that call to the abundant life that Jesus offers us. And that's important because we're trying to embrace that, of course, in a world that too often convinces us, at least convinces me, I can speak for myself, to, to settle for its counterfeits. So, Tonight I want to talk more about that abundant life, and specifically I want to talk about what I think is one of the key obstacles to embracing that abundant life for committed believers today, and that is spiritual perfectionism. Now, I know you've probably heard about perfectionism. Seems like we're hearing about it all the time these days. It's that collective addiction to control and flawlessness and impossible expectations that grips our secular culture like a vice. We've heard perfectionism blamed for everything from our credit card debt, our rates of pharmaceutical addiction, even filters on Facebook photos and facelifts and those 
uh, tiger moms and helicopter coaches and work martyrs who won't take their vacation days. We've heard that the millennials are the most perfectionist generation in history. Not sure how you can measure all the way back to the cavemen. I'm sure there was somebody who was you know, beating himself up because he couldn't get the fire started early enough. But we know <laughs> that this is a perennial problem and it seems to be getting worse these days. And spiritual perfectionism, which what I, I want to talk about tonight, it's that same demand for flawlessness transposed onto our relationship with God. It manifests in everything from discouragement over stubborn faults to crippling guilt over our past mistakes or small sins to compulsive comparing of our lives with the lives of others and even a tendency toward overcommitment that can goad us into wearing ourselves out doing good works. Spiritual perfectionism can make us hypersensitive to criticism, hypercritical of others, or it can make us simply shut down spiritually out of frustration that we're just too flawed to live this faith whose ideals seem impossibly out of reach. Now, maybe none of this sounds familiar to you. Maybe you're sure you don't fit the perfectionist mold because you don't obsess over your sins any more than over your bank balance or your pants size or whatever, but ask yourself this. Have you ever thought that all of that talk we hear of God's mercy doesn't apply to you? That if you didn't work so hard, if you didn't do all the things you do, your daily prayer routine, your service to family and community, your tithing, your public witness to the faith, that God might love you a little bit less, that he might even punish you? Have you ever found yourself telling someone else about God's limitless love and forgiveness and secretly thought, of course, that doesn't apply to me? Have you ever told yourself you're one of the good ones, the ones God expects to know better, so there's no excuse when you fail? In other words, you may not be a perfectionist by worldly standards, but are you a spiritual perfectionist? It's a real problem one of the most insidious and pervasive in the spiritual life. And it's a problem precisely because so many of us mistake it for a virtue or deny that we suffer from it at all. Spiritual perfectionism is rooted in the unspoken belief that we can earn God's love. Left unacknowledged and untreated, it fuels a toxic cycle of pride, sin, shame, blame and despair that infects every aspect of our lives, distorting our vision, dulling our faith, and leading us to spread it like a contagion through our family tree. Worst of all, spiritual perfectionism distances us from our one true hope for healing, which is God's grace. Now I know in a culture that's fixated on feeling good and boosting our self-esteem, this may seem like a marginal concern, but don't let today's feel-good slogans fool you. While our collective talk of sin and guilt is rare, our collective mania for self-improvement is at fever pitch. Millions of seekers flit from trend to trend, seeking peace and enlightenment. We all know there's something wrong. We just don't know how to fix it, because we can't fix it, not by ourselves. We Christians know this, or at least we're supposed to know this. Yet highly committed Christians often fall hardest into the trap of spiritual perfectionism. We drink the same perfectionist Kool-Aid as everyone else, except in a double dose. We're not satisfied meeting only the world's standards of perfection. Abs of steel and a kid at Harvard won't cut it. We also want perfect charity and glow-in-the-dark holiness so we pray all the right prayers, befriend all the right people, read all the right books, and we do all the right things. And somewhere along the way, we can burn out. That faith that once consoled us becomes a source of shame, all because we've forgotten its central truth, that Jesus came to save us because we cannot save ourselves. So what then am I advocating that we throw in the prayer towel and resign ourselves to mediocrity? That we join today's swelling ranks of spiritual drifters, rejecting any doctrine that makes a demand on us and treating mercy as a pass to 
do whatever feels good. That cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, is how many people today seem to understand God's mercy as canceling out or contradicting his justice and requiring no repentance or conversion on our part. Following that logic, the solution to perfectionism is simply to lower our standards, to accept that Christ's challenge to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect was a mistake, something not intended for the likes of us. That won't wash. No matter how many people smile at our sins or commit the same ones, something deep within us tells us that God deserves better. That's his justice. And that same voice, the whisper of the Holy Spirit, tells us we can't do better, not on our own. That's his mercy. Scripture and tradition tell us the two of them. God's justice and his mercy always go together. So the cure for perfectionism must respect both. We must reject spiritual perfectionism without lapsing into spiritual laziness. We must lean on grace, but also cooperate with grace. Now, this is no simple task. It's, it's easier to fall into the extremes of presumption or despair than to do as the saints did and hit that sweet spot between them. I know because I've tried and failed often. Perfectionism has been and continues to be a struggle for me. Now, maybe that's not surprising for someone who drafted her first resume in sixth grade or used to return her high school boyfriend's love letters to him spell-checked in red ink. <laughs> he appreciated it. He told me so before we broke up. Anyway, <laughs> I, I blame my genes for this one. My mom cops to being a perfectionist, and she's nothing compared to her mom. Grandma B didn't just have 12 children and serve as president of nearly every arts organization in Green Bay, Wisconsin. She also baked her own whole wheat bread during the Wonder Bread years, served her children a hot homemade lunch each afternoon because she didn't think the school fair was up to par, and she took in foster children, wayward teens, stray bunnies, and any other critters she could find in need of a home because, you know, she didn't have enough else going on. All the while maintaining a stunning figure and marching her dozen little ducklings into mass each weekday morning, wearing stiletto pumps, matching hat, and dazzling smile. Grandma made today's age of the supermom look like amateur hour, but her flawless facade did take a toll on herself and her family. Now, no one who visits my humble abode in St. Louis would mistake me for grandma. I did have four children in a little over four years, but I'm no domestic goddess. I just moved houses a few months ago, and I'm finding boxes that I hadn't unpacked since the last move three years ago, and a few that I hadn't unpacked since the move three years before that. Cooking is less a love affair than a necessity for me, and it wasn't too long ago that I realized with six mouths to feed every night, I couldn't keep relying on takeout and whatever I could rustle up from the back of the fridge in 15 minutes. I do homeschool, and I bake my own bread using a bread maker. Don't tell Grandma. <laughs> I don't own a TV, which apparently makes me the weirdest and strictest parent on the planet, not to mention a really strange television commentator. And now when I go on Amazon to shop for baby shampoo or whole wheat flour, I get these personalized uh, ads that recommend the latest survivalist lit, you know, books <laughs> on how to make your own soap and build your bunker for the end times, right? So I'm not in grandma's league yet, but some days it feels like I'm headed in that direction. And on those days when I'm racing to cram in a run on six hours sleep or cram Latin declensions I never learned in school so I can teach them to my kids or make one last tweak on that manuscript I know I should just send in to my editor already, I feel crazy for driving myself so hard, and maybe I am. There are other times, though, when my full house and full life force me to slow down and decline requests I probably had no business entertaining in the first place. Having four little people underfoot all day, you come face to face daily, hourly even, with your limitations and your weaknesses. Incrementalism becomes your friend, and perfectionism starts to seem like exactly what it is, an impossible quest premised on a lie. I remember the first time I caught a glimpse of the lie behind perfectionism. It was 
on an ordinary day in the middle of an ordinary week, I can still see its climactic moment in my mind's eye like a video clip captured by someone else. It's dusk. I'm nine months pregnant, wearing this thin pink maternity top that I can barely use to cover my bulging belly. And I, I should be wearing a coat, but I misjudge the weather. Now an icy wind howls across the hospital parking lot to reproach me for yet another mistake. I'm rushing a bleeding toddler to the emergency room. I want to run to its warmth and safety, but I can't. The varicose vein that always flares up during my pregnancies is especially inflamed now. It shoots fire up my left thigh with each alternate step. My lower back throbs from the weight of this unborn baby that feels ready to emerge. And now comes a contraction, a huge one, even bigger than the others I've been getting all day. And I, I double over, gripping my child's hand as I gasp for air. Salty tears mingled with sweat pour into my parched mouth, and I think, I'm going to go into labor right here on this blacktop. Good. <laughs> I deserve that. I deserve everything bad, because this whole thing is all my fault. It was one of those freak accidents, the kind that could happen to any kid. But it happened to my kid on my watch, and I could have prevented it. I could have slowed down, could have checked again, could have stopped trying to run around doing so many things that I wound up too frazzled and distracted to protect my child. Instead, I played super mom. I tried to do it all again. And at the end of another frantic day, just as my hunger and fatigue and contractions had escalated to a point that I knew was dangerous, the accident happened. Now here I am, barely able to stand as I clasp the tiny hand of this child whose body must bear the stain of my perfectionism. I steady myself with my hands on my knees and a, a thousand thoughts rush over me. I think of another night I spent at this same hospital when I first became a mother and I saw one of my twins rush to the NICU. I feel the same overwhelming fear and guilt, only is it, this time it's, it's worse. The hurt isn't imaginary or potential. It's as real as the blood that splattered on my shirt sleeves when I tried with shaking hands to bandage my child's wound. My child will be all right. The injury is not crippling or life-threatening. But what if it doesn't heal the right way? What if every time I look into those sweet, trusting eyes, all I see looking back at me is my own shame and regret? I've punished myself mercilessly for lesser offenses. I'll never forgive myself for this one. I think of how angry my husband will be, how angry God must be. I don't deserve their forgiveness or my own. And then, for the first time in my life, I think this. Someone should give that woman a break. I'm taken aback. The thought feels foreign, as if it came from someone else. I swing my head up and resume my breathless charge to the ER, and a strange calm envelops me as I move through the descending darkness. The familiar chant of condemnation resumes in my head. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. But it's quieter now, as if coming from a distance. And a new sequence erupts, unbidden. I have to forgive myself. I screwed up, but I'm the only mother this child has. I have to take care of myself so I can take care of these kids, including this unborn baby inside me. I wonder, as I take the last few steps toward the light of the hospital entrance, could it be that the perfectionist voice that got me into this mess is the same one now telling me there's no way out? And that the voice telling me otherwise is the voice of truth? I don't have time to decide. We dash into the ER and the rest of the night is a blur. The events of that day, both the accident and my reaction to it, made perfectionism 
a front burner concern for me. I started praying about it, talking about it with spiritual mentors and paying attention to the way it shaped my days. I began to notice how that voice of my inner critic was stealing my joy in happy moments and compounding my sorrow with shame in sad ones. For years, I had assumed that critical voice was my own, a reliable, if depressing, guide to the hard truth about my life and myself. Now I was beginning to wonder, was that voice really mine? Was it really right? Was it even on my side? The more I stopped to analyze that voice, rather than blindly obey it, the more I recognized that it was preventing me from being the sort of joyful, affirming, unconditionally loving mother I wanted to be. It was also blocking growth in my work, sowing discord in my marriage and distorting my relationship with God. And that last piece, that was a particular surprise to me. I had always believed that my striving for perfection and the illusion I gave of occasionally coming near achieving it was simply who I was. It was how God made me. It was who I had to be to be worthy of his love. If that wasn't true, then what? Was I supposed to remake myself overnight before I permanently damaged my kids? And how would I rid myself of those countless habits of mind and heart that I had cultivated based on these beliefs? How could I do that while retaining the parts of myself that I liked? My ability to thrive under pressure, my attraction to big challenges, my desire to do big things for God. And what about that command of Jesus? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How could I try to do that? How could I aim for holiness if I surrendered perfectionism? Now, you might be wondering, well, what does any of this have to do with saints? With that great cloud of witnesses, as St. Paul tells us, who went before us in faith and achieved that profound, everlasting intimacy with God that is the goal of every Christian life. Well, for a long time, I wondered the same thing. I loved the saints. After admiring them as a kid and neglecting them as a teenager, I rediscovered them in my 20s. I even wrote a memoir, My Sisters the Saints, about how the stories and wisdom of canonized saints like Mother Teresa and Teresa of Avila helped me cope with infertility and my father's Alzheimer's disease. This problem, though, this perfectionism problem, I couldn't see how the saints could help me with this. How could I find guidance from the same spiritual overachievers whose accomplishments seem tailor-made to shove me into that same cycle of compare and despair that I was trying to escape? Wasn't focusing on the saints part of my problem? I thought it was. So for the first few years after my epiphany in that hospital parking lot, I steered clear of the saints. I dodged their writings and life stories, sure that I already knew what was there, and it couldn't possibly help me with this. Slowly, though, I began tiptoeing back to the stories of the saints, and I took my perfectionism questions with me. And what I found threw me for a loop. Some of the same holy men and women that I had once seen as encouraging my spiritual perfectionism were themselves recovering perfectionists. And their grace-fueled victory over this ancient problem, not perfectionist striving, was the key to their heroic virtues and contagious joy. Inspired by that discovery, I began holing up in university libraries on nights and weekends when my husband had the kids, poring through dusty old books about perfectionist heresies. I combed through scripture, reading its verses about perfection in a whole new light. And I took a second look at holy figures from 6th century founder of monasticism, Benedict of Nursia, and the medieval reformer, Francis of Assisi, to more modern saints like Francis de Sales and Therese of Lisieux. And as I did, I detected a pattern that I'd never noticed before. In the most trying times of Christian history, amid the fall of Rome, the complacency of the Middle Ages, the rise of modern atheism, God has turned to recovering perfectionist saints to heal and lead his people. That gave me hope. I found it inspiring to know that the canon of sinners turned saints doesn't just include ex-murderers like Paul and ex-playboys like Augustine. It's also home to ex-workaholics, 
former people pleasers, reformed social climbers, and survivors of religious OCD. The laudable intensity of these friends of God didn't always start out so laudable, and their virtuous excesses weren't always directed purely to God's glory at first, which makes them uniquely equipped to help those of us who battle spiritual perfectionism, because so many of these holy people waged and won that same battle in their own lives. The Heart of Perfection, my new book, tells the full story of what I learned from these saints and my own trial and error experiments in applying their wisdom to my life. I won't attempt a full summary of the book here, but I do want to preview a few key takeaways, five of them, that I believe can help anyone who struggles with perfectionism, even if your tendencies in this area aren't as pronounced as mine or those of the lives of some of these saints. And the first and most important takeaway is this, that our desire for perfection is not itself the problem. In fact, it's an important part of the solution. The saints are a motley crew, right? They're wildly diverse in their personalities and gifts and quirks and life circumstances. But one thing they all had in common was a passionate, single-minded love of God, doing God's will, becoming who God wanted them to be, topped every other priority in their lives. The saints often had admirably balanced approaches to work or relationships or theology, but when it came to loving Jesus, they weren't balanced. They were extremists. They wanted to go all the way. They wanted perfection. That's important because many of the voices in our culture that rightly tell us to resist the lure of perfectionism wrongly counsel us to do it by surrendering our idealism altogether. They suggest that our desire for spiritual excellence is a fanatical impulse that we need to suppress. Don't worry about aiming for holiness or practicing chastity or detaching from sin, they tell us, because you're perfect already, just the way you are. Well, God does love us just the way we are. He also loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. And we can't do that if we're mired in complacency, convincing ourselves every time we feel a twinge of guilt or a flash of spiritual ambition that we need to just settle down and settle for good enough. The saints, they didn't settle. And neither should we. The trick, of course, is to make our spiritual idealism work for us rather than against us, and to make sure we're working toward the right goal. And that leads to the second key takeaway from the ex-perfectionist saints, that God's idea of perfection, gospel perfection, isn't just different from the world's idea. It's diametrically opposed. And the very impulse that makes us winners in the world's eyes is the one we need to overcome in pursuit of eternal life with Christ. Think about it, a perfect life, according to the world, is one that's perfectly managed, perfectly planned, perfectly controlled. It leaves no room for suffering or weakness. It also leaves no room for joy, because genuine joy isn't something we can manufacture or plan or control. It comes from giving God the reins. Where perfectionism is about our agenda and centered on ourselves, Gospel perfection is about surrendering to God's vision for our lives. Even when that vision includes letting us live for years with faults that we'd rather the Lord erased overnight. Perfection, St. Therese of Lisieux says, consists in doing God's will and in being that which he wants us to be. And sometimes what God wants us to be is not flawless, but humble. Personally, I'd rather be flawless. I think I have a lot of company there. But there is a certain humility that only comes through humiliations, and it does have its upside. When we accept weakness as part of our human condition, and even as part of God's plan for our sanctification and the sanctification of those around us who have to put up with us, our mistakes are no longer disasters. They're opportunities to learn, and they become easier to recognize, admit, and confess because we no longer have such a strong stake in pretending they didn't happen in the first place. Even the experience of sin is transformed 
When we surrender spiritual perfectionism, we can look at our sins square in the face and ask with genuine curiosity, what is God trying to teach me through this? How will he use this mess that I've made for his glory and my good? For we know, as scripture says, that all things work together for good for those who love God. To reject spiritual perfectionism is to say, yes, I believe that's true. Not just for the next guy, but for me. The recovering perfectionist saints, they did this. All of them. Many were born into perfectionist families, imbibing perfectionist theology in perfectionist cultures. And yet they learned through prayer and study and the rough and tumble of life experience that their own attempts at self-perfection were counterproductive. And it was only when they put their sanctification in God's hands and accepted his mercy for their failures that they started to see genuine progress, which leads to our third key takeaway, that we can't recover from perfectionism without cultivating patience toward ourselves and our faults. This is a lesson that St. Jane de Chantal knew well. Jane was a 17th century French wife and mother. She co-founded the Visitation Religious Order, a community of nuns with St. Francis de Sales after she had raised her children. She was also a diehard perfectionist with an ardent faith that matched her iron will. Jane's faith was sorely tested when she was 29. She was passionately in love with her husband, And when she had just given birth to their fourth child, still laying in bed a few days after the baby's birth, her husband went out hunting with a cousin, freak accident, he got shot. And uh, uh, he died, and Jane found herself widowed, age 29, with four kids under age six. She was forced to move in with her abusive father-in-law, who was carrying on an affair with a housekeeper that had resulted in the birth of five children. So the housekeeper wanted the old man's money, and her goal was to make Jane's life as miserable as possible in order to get her out of the picture. A local priest inadvertently contributed to that misery when he took Jane on, uh, became her spiritual director, and encouraged her to double down on these harsh penances and exhausting prayer routines that were already leaving her too weak to stumble through her long days as a single mom. By the time Jane met St. Francis de Sales, a few years after her husband's death, she was depressed and teetering on the brink of a nervous breakdown. Francis, who was a bishop who had battled his own perfectionist demons in college, quickly sized up Jane's situation. After seeing her discipline her children sternly for very small faults, grow frustrated with her relatives and employees who failed to meet her high standards and prioritize rule following and adherence to her own rigid devotional schedule over charity to others, Francis concluded that Jane's hardness and impatience with others were driven by her hardness and impatience with herself. And both of those were driven by the flawlessness that she thought God was demanding of her. So in an early letter, which is how he communicated most of his spiritual direction, Francis tells Jane, you're too much of a perfectionist about your faith. He says, just let the slightest doubt creep in and you think it spoils everything. Francis urged Jane to let go of that perfectionist all or nothing thinking and the spiritual heroics that were wearing her out. Focus instead on prayer from the heart, he told her, cultivating what he called the little virtues. Gentleness, patience, simplicity, charity, humility. Francis told Jane, keep correcting your children's faults, but do this, he said, like the angels, with tender encouragement, respect for their freedom, and none of the harshness or hectoring to which she was accustomed. He told her, continue practicing self-denial, but don't do it by starving yourself or not sleeping but through more targeted penances, like passing up a favorite food or answering cheerfully when you're interrupted. Now, this might sound easier than the way Jane was living before, but it was actually very challenging advice for Jane. This is a woman who rode nine miles each way to daily mass, side saddle, after her husband's death, living in a culture where she was encouraged to get married again right away, she didn't want to, she branded the name of Jesus on her chest with a sewing needle, okay? Jane was intense. But little by little, Francis encouraged her to take a different view of what it took to grow closer to Jesus. And she started to put his ideas into action. So instead of dreaming up ever harsher penances for herself, she focused instead on showing gentleness to her family. 
When her friends bad-mouthed her in-laws, she shushed them. When she felt tempted to self-pity, she pulled out a hymnal filled with psalms, and she sang them to lift her own spirits. And even neighbors who had gossiped about Jane, saying she was exposing her children to risk by the lepers that she cared for in her home, they came in for gentler treatment. Instead of ignoring them or snapping back at them like she used to, she started to explain what she was doing and why. And with each of these little changes, these little sacrifices, Jane found new freedom. As the years passed, she gradually grew into a paragon of holy gentleness, a woman who in her later years, as a nun starting new convents in different cities around France, would be greeted by cheering crowds when she'd walk into a city. People from all walks of life started to seek her out for spiritual advice, and she always shared with them the truth that had set her free. As she put it, that the best practice of the virtue of patience in the spiritual life is bearing with oneself in our failures and feebleness of will. Or as her friend Francis liked to say, be patient with everyone, but above all, with yourself. Now, you might be thinking what I did when I first read Jane's story, and that is, well, sure, she recovered from perfectionism. I mean, who wouldn't if you had St. Francis de Sales, a doctor of the church, as your spiritual director and BFF? <laughs> but then I learned about Angela Carnault, better known as the mistress of Jansenism. Angelique's the only official heretic or gets her own chapter in the heart of perfection and all. I'll save the sordid details for you to read on your own. They're, they're quite interesting, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. So Angelique lived at the same time as Jane. They were actually, they actually crossed paths and exchanged letters for a bit. And like Jane, she was smart, strong, 17th century French noblewoman. She too was mentored for a time by Francis de Sales. Like Jane, Angelique was the leader of a religious community, and like Jane, Angelique wanted holiness yesterday for herself and everybody around her. Unlike Jane, though, Angelique didn't listen when Francis told her to focus more on the little virtues than the flashy external feats of religious life, to curb her sharp tongue, and to show herself and others around her more grace, to put her sanctification in God's hands and live her faith from a place of joy and not merely duty. Angelique didn't overcome her perfectionism. And by the time she died, her refusal to receive God's healing grace in that part of her life had led her off the cliff of one of the most notorious heresies, notorious perfectionist heresies in church history, taking a convent full of nuns and countless lay followers with her. Angelique and the dour Jansenist ethos she embraced flourished long before our time, but I think hers is a fitting cautionary tale for us. Today we're bombarded by noise and distraction as never before. They screech at us all hours from our screens. We're immersed in a social media climate that rewards the shrillest and shallowest voices. And we're mired in incessant bad news about the culture, the government, and the church. And it's easy in this situation to do what Angelique did in her own scandal-ridden era to focus more on human evil than God's goodness, and to let our faith morph from a living, loving relationship with Jesus and his church to a dull, angry ideology. When that happens, as it did for Angelique, spiritual joy dries up, and we find ourselves griping in the corner with Angelique, chronically scandalized at all those who fall short of our expectations, and scandalizing others with smugness, cynicism, self-righteousness. It's a dangerous place to be. Scripture tells us the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that means we are weak, vulnerable to sin, error, and attack when we forfeit our joy. And the fourth key takeaway from the recovering perfectionist saints and from unrecovered Angelique is that we must consciously cultivate joy in our lives every day, even when that means distancing ourselves from those people, situations, and habits that we know leech our joy and lead us into sin. As we do this, as we cultivate joy and patience toward ourselves, we natural be, naturally begin to share these with others, which brings me to the final takeaway that I want to share with you tonight, that there's more riding on our recovery from perfectionism than our own welfare alone. 
The more liberated we become from perfectionism, the more we give those around us permission to become liberated too. That's how it was for Alphonsus Liguri. He was an 18th century Italian founder of the Redemptorists, a canonized saint. A religious order that he started was dedicated to missionary preaching among the poor. And Alphonsus knew perfectionism from the inside out. He was the oldest of a large family, the son of two raging perfectionists. His mother suffered from a neurotic fear of sin. She, you know, the confessors in this little town would die, dive for cover when they saw her come, and she'd get, you know, get her little list out of every little thing she'd thought and done. His, his father was a naval captain who thought, young man needs to sleep on the hard wooden floor to toughen him up from a very young age. He used to lock him in a room with his music teacher to make sure he practiced for hours at a stretch. So Alphonsus was the locus of all of these perfectionist parents' hopes and anxieties, and he responded to all that pushing by pushing himself hard. By 12, he was a virtuoso on the harp. By 17, this homeschooled child prodigy had graduated from university with not one but two doctorates, one in canon law, church law, and one in civil law. But Alphonsus was still never good enough for his dad. He practiced law almost a decade before he lost his first case. But when he did, neither Alphonsus nor his dad took it well. Alphonsus locked himself in his room for three days, refusing to eat. His dad told his mom, let him starve. Professional failure was shattering for Alphonsus, but it did free him up to follow a call into the ministry despite his father's objections. Yet scruples followed Alphonsus into the seminary where he studied, and as a young priest, Alphonsus drove himself to exhaustion and struggled with obsessive guilt over every small or even imaginary sin he committed. Alphonsus finally found some relief a few years into his priesthood when a bishop met him and challenged him to rethink his image of God and asked him, are you modeling your image of God on your father, your vengeful, petty, earthly father who completely rejected you when you chose this profession? Or are you modeling it on the unconditionally loving father that Jesus reveals to us in the Gospels? He challenged Alphonsus to get back into the word, to go through the Gospels, and really see the face of God there. So Alphonsus took the challenge. He immersed himself in God's word, and he filled his journal with Bible verses about the Lord's love and focused his prayers on the tender humanity of Jesus, the word made flesh. Over time, as he did this, love gradually replaced fear as the driving force in his faith. And he still struggled at times with scruples, but the truth that freed Alphonsus, that Jesus came to save us, not scare us, reverberated through his ministry and went on to touch thousands. They transformed him from an anxious, anguished perfectionist into a beloved preacher who drew scores of souls back into a living relationship with Jesus. And he became a celebrated moral theologian who restored balance in his field at a time when most others were tending toward the extremes of legalism or laxity. Rethinking our image of God the way Alphonsus did is a crucial step toward healing for any perfectionist. And one of the best ways to do that is to do as he did and dig into God's word. I've spent more time studying scripture in recent years as I've had these perfectionism questions, and I've been searching for answers to them. And the more I study, the more I understand that quote Alphonsus had, that there's nothing more, emulate, more apt to stimulate a Christian to love God than to study the word of God. Why does it work that way? Well, God's word spurs me to love because it gives me a true picture of who God is. That picture bears little resemblance to my childhood caricatures of a benevolent dictator with a mile-wide mean streak. The father who knit me in my mother's womb sent his son to die for me on that cross and sustains me in my every breath is for me not against. Think about that for a second. Let it sink in. God is for you. He's not rooting against you. He's not waiting for you to screw up. He's not itching to teach you a lesson. He is passionately, undeniably, 
irrevocably for you. He may not always like or bless what you're doing. God hates sin because it separates us from him. But in the most fundamental sense, the only one that counts, God is always for us. He wants what's best for us. He loves us with a love, scripture tells us, strong as death, passion fierce as the grave, that many waters cannot quench, neither can floods drown. In a face of a love that overpowering, fear has to flee. And once it does, we become free and beacons of freedom to others. That's how it was for all of the recovering perfectionist saints. Their struggles with fear and control and comparison are the crucible that gave us the church-reforming witness of Francis of Assisi, the civilization-saving work-life balance of Benedict of Nursia, the detailed discernment rules of Ignatius of Loyola, and the little way of Therese of Lisieux, a saint who capped a lifetime of battling scrupulosity, hypersensitivity, and people-pleasing with her famous proclamation, all is grace. It can be the same for us. God isn't waiting until we're perfect or even until we're perfectly free of trying to be perfect, to love us and to work through us. He's waiting only for our permission to let him heal us, our yes to beginning this journey toward the only perfection that counts, freedom in Christ. We can't give that permission to God if we don't trust God. And we can't trust him if we don't know him and let him know us. If we're so busy trying to tip through, through life, not making messes or mistakes, that we hide from God how we really feel and who we really are. Human love sometimes demands that of us. But God's love, God's love is different. God doesn't love us only when we're wearing our brave face or our good girl dress. God loves us always and everywhere. No conditions, no exceptions, no blackout dates. And our refusal to trust that love pains God more than our sins. We hear an echo of that pain in Christ's lament over Jerusalem when he says, how many times I have yearned to gather your children together as a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were unwilling. The Savior who leaves 99 sheep to chase the one that got away is not just willing to overlook our imperfections. He's yearning to submerge them in the ocean of his love. Yearning. Think about that. Or better yet, picture this. A child, your own child perhaps, as a baby, just learning to walk. He stumbles and falls, his chubby little legs too wobbly to and new to get him where he wants to go. And as he does, he knocks over your favorite porcelain planter and dirt spills all over him and your fresh white carpeting for the third time that morning. This time, a shard pierces his skin. He wails in frustration, reaching his pudgy little arms out to you, begging you to take away his pain. He's angry and hurting and all confused, curls cling to his little tear-stained cheeks as he lets out this cry that pierces your heart. Do you look at him, this child you love more than your own life, and think, let him sit there in his mess. That'll teach him. Or do you think, I couldn't love anyone more than I love that little boy. And you rush to scoop him up into your arms. And in that moment, the very gates of hell couldn't keep you from him. That's how our Heavenly Father, our Abba, our Daddy, feels about each one of us. Jesus tells us so in the parable of the prodigal son. While the son was still a long way off, Jesus says, his father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. God longs to embrace each one of us. All we have to do is stop running from his mercy, stop getting ourselves all tangled up in our own perfectionist red tape, 
and just turn and receive that loving embrace. As we do that, we have friends in heaven who are cheering us on. The saints know how hard this struggle is because they waged it themselves. They also know how rewarding it is because they're already enjoying those rewards. Right now, at this very moment, ex-perfectionists are gazing on the face of God, tasting a joy we can't even fathom. Scripture says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has ready for those who love him. If we believe that, if we really believe it, then we have nothing to fear about surrendering our dreams of perfect for God's or our plans in life for his. So let's take those first steps toward that future full of hope that God has promised each one of us by asking him to show us in prayer what he most wants to heal in us and by giving him permission to begin that healing work, not tomorrow, not next week, but now. If the sun frees you, Jesus says, you will be free indeed. Let's do it. Let's let him free us. Let's begin tonight. Thank you. Can you hear me now? Okay, good. Thank you, Colleen. Um, I'm going to let her rest her voice for a moment um, and give all of you a chance to ask her some questions, um, but I'm going to make a few announcements first. There's a mic to my right and to my left, um, and you're welcome to come up uh, after I'm done with uh, a couple of announcements to ask whatever you'd like. Uh, so first thing I want to mention is the next Faith in Life event. We're going to let you get through Thanksgiving and Christmas and the New Year. And then in February, and this is on in your program, uh, a woman named Jennifer Farr Davis um, is going to join us. That's on February 6th. Uh, Jennifer, I believe, was the National Geographic Person of the Year a number of years ago, and she holds the record for hiking the Appalachian Trail more quickly than anyone else in the world. Um, and she'll actually be featured in um, the next issue of our uh, church's magazine called Inspire, which will be coming out uh, in a matter of a week or two. If you're interested in seeing that interview, uh, swing by and pick up a copy of that in the next week or two. Um, if you would like us to alert you about future events, please sign up for uh, email alerts. You can use this form to do that and leave it with us tonight. You can also go to our website. You can also go to our Facebook page to be alerted uh, to upcoming events. Uh, in your program tonight also are listed, uh, I sure hope, all of our sponsors. Again, I, I feel terribly last time we had inadvertently left uh, one couple out. Um, if we have done that again, please, please, please let me know. Uh, but we are so grateful uh, to everyone who makes these events possible. From the beginning of these events, uh, again, 17 years ago, they have always been free and open to the public. That was a deep commitment we had about uh, these community-wide events. We didn't want to have people pay to come. And so all the individuals and organizations who so generously support these events uh, have continued to make that happen year after year after year. Uh, many of our supporters are here tonight. Um, will you join me in thanking them for making these uh, open to the public? I also, as always, want to thank Jeff Elstad for his beautiful music before and after our talk. So, Jeff, good to see you again, and thank you for your, your work with us. Um, Subtext Books is a, a partner of ours. They're an independent bookseller in St. Paul. They're very generous to come and spend evenings with us and make uh, books by our speakers available. Um, so Colleen's book is available uh, at the desk with subtext uh, in the narthex. You are also welcome at that same table to sign up for daily devotions, I believe, from Colleen. Is that correct? Is that what that sheet was? A daily, daily devotion. Daily, it, it only lasts a week. I only wrote a week's worth. Oh, it's no. a week's worth. Okay, fine. <laughs> but you can still... 
You can still sign up for those. I'm letting go of perfectionism, yeah. All right. And she also, she will be at a table in the back and happy to inscribe those books. She wanted me to make clear, though, that even if you don't buy a book, you're welcome to stop by and say hello to her or ask her a question, okay? So that's very generous of her, and I wanted to be clear about that as well. Um, I think that's the only announcements I had. So, Colleen, if you want to join us again, if there are questions, we'll take uh, questions for the next few minutes. One of the things I did not mention, by the way, in case this prompts some questions, is that among her many uh, activities uh, professionally, Colleen actually served as a speechwriter for George W. Bush uh, for a year. So. Oh, great. Now I'm going to get a bunch of questions about George Bush. Well, now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One year, certain set of policies. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> People always want to know the inside scoop on all these things that I wasn't privy to because I just wasn't important oh. enough. But <laughs> All right, don't be shy. Someone come and ask a question. And you're also welcome to talk to me at the table, too. Like I said, you don't have to buy a book, but if you want to ask me something more personal and not in front of a crowd, I'm good with that, too. I would sing for you, but you don't want to listen to my voice. If you're worried about asking the perfect question, um, that would be slightly ironic, if I may say so. Here we go. Bush. My, my understanding is he's a man of very deep uh, religious faith. Uh, did you have a chance to sort of uh, interact with that faith and feel that during your time with him? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I was only there a year, and um, I, I did interact with him, though, in the Oval. On the speeches I wrote about were the faith-based initiative um, and, and education, some of those kind of um, issues. But I, I did see that faith, and I, I thought it was very sincere. And... Um, you know, I think like anyone, he would be the first to say he did some things well and did some things badly, but he, uh, I found him to be a very genuine person and uh, who often came across even better in private than sometimes in public. So yeah, I, in my opinion, his faith seemed very sincere from what I could see. Thank you. You shared with us where your um, path changed in terms of perfectionism. Could you share with us um, your spiritual journey before that? Were you always a spiritual individual? Um, or did you start as a writer and evolve from that? Or did it just evolve? Sure. Thanks. Um, so my writing was always pretty secular. I got a degree in English, but I was a newspaper journalist for many years. And I, I did serve a year uh, with President Bush as a speechwriter. I did some postgraduate studies in philosophy, but my work had always been very secular. My faith had always been important to me, uh, but I did go through a period in college where um, I was just kind of checking the box. I'm Catholic. I went to the drive-through mass, we called it. It was 20 minutes long, so you could get in and out. And uh, <laughs> that was about the extent of my spiritual life for much of college. But around the end of college, and I write more deeply about this in my previous book, My Sisters, the Saints, I felt a real gnawing emptiness. I was kind of pursuing everything that was supposed to make me happy, and I wasn't happy. And I missed the peace and that kind of deep down joy that I had felt in my younger years that I saw in my parents, uh, who were pretty devout people. And, and so it began a spiritual journey for me in which the saints played a really healing role because... I thought they were goody-goodies that I couldn't relate to. And when I, my dad gave me a book on Teresa of Avila my senior year in college, which I only read because they had just moved to St. Louis and I didn't know anyone, I was really bored. So I opened it up and it was everything he said it was. And she was so interesting to me. She was so passionate, fiery, feisty, funny, smart, bold. And I didn't know saints could be like that. I thought they had to always be little pasty face, goody two-shoes. And so it was just, um, it opened a whole new world to me. And I started to relate to them. And I started to see that the liberation that I was seeking and the fulfillment and the joy and all of those things I was seeking didn't have to be apart from my faith or compartmentalized in some way, but that my faith was the surest means of really reaching those. And so that, 
that spiritual journey eventually intersected with my writing career such that I got tired of writing about secular matters when I couldn't bring my faith into it. So that's where I started making the switch, and eventually now I really just kind of focus on books, which is partly a time management thing with little kids too. But um, it's a real joy to be able to bring my faith more fully into my writing. You talked about perfectionism being something that you inherited, grandmother, mother, something in your own. How do you see that playing into your role now as a mother and trying to maybe circumvent that from coming down another generation in your own kids? How does that play out in your daily life as a mother? Yeah, that's a great question. And that question haunted me enough to get me to write a book about it, so that's... <laughs> this book is in large part an a outgrowth of my, um, you know, laying awake at night thinking, I'm going to do this to my kids, oh my gosh, you know, so um, that really motivated me, because, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I have this quirk, I have this thing about myself, it's kind of a problem, but, but when you see that it, it, it does run in families, and all the all the research shows this, um, and, and they can't quite decide, is it nature, is it nurture, is it a little bit of both? There's probably a bit of both going on there. Um, but there is a sense in which we, we very much can pass this on uh, to our children, through our families, and I, I was very conscious of that. I'm sure I have to some extent, uh, despite my best efforts. And I think, um, you know, and I do think there are some qualities that may just be inherent. I mean, a couple of my kids, I think, oh gosh, I know that, you know, that they're like tears when it's a 99%, not 100. And it's like, it doesn't matter, it's fine, you know. And, you know, I mean, you, you just, maybe some of that is genetic, I don't know. But uh, I think the biggest key for our own healing and for the healing in our family tree is that awareness. Just saying, oh, this is not a virtue. This isn't a good thing. And this isn't a small problem. This is significant. And this is deeply tied to our relationship with Christ. And this needs to be an area I open to him for healing. Um, I think that awareness is the biggest thing. And for me, it, you know, in terms of battling it day to day, handing on that legacy, um, you know, one thing I've heard that's an interesting, and I write about this a little in the book, one family uh, goes around the table, instead of everybody saying their success for the day, they say one thing they, one mistake they made and what they learned from it. You know, that idea of sharing with our kids not simply our success stories, but the times we, we messed up and learned something, the times we, you know, we felt embarrassed or small or silly or stupid instead of just, you know, mommy or daddy always had it together and why can't you, you know? And, uh, and of course, you know, we kind of know all of this intellectually, but it can help, I think. And finally, the, probably the best practice for me is just in the moment um, when I catch myself, you know, saying that prayer when I can think of it, um, Jesus, I'm sorry, help me do better. Instead of, I didn't do that, that's fine, it's not a big deal, I, you know, it's, it's, yep, screwed that one up, sorry, help me do better. But then, you keep going as opposed to now I'm going to be in a funk for the rest of the day over you know, nursing my little grudge at myself. And at the same time, even apologizing. You know, I've apologized to a three-year-old. You know, I'm sorry, Mommy, you know, snapped at you too hard. You know, and I think that's good. I think we can apologize to kids. I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't think it undermines our authority. I think it just shows I'm human, and I'm not trying to pretend I'm God over here. You know, if you want a perfect parent, you have one, and luckily you don't, it doesn't have to be me. You have one in heaven who loves you unconditionally and doesn't screw up the way mommy does, but I still can have authority and set the rules, but I think it is helpful to apologize when we catch ourselves being too harsh or, or kind of reenacting that perfectionism with our families or our kids. Okay. Oh, we do have another one? All right. This may be a little bit more difficult for you, uh, but I don't want you to share anything uncomfortable, but is your husband a perfectionist? <laughs> and if not, how does he handle? Me. How, how, how did he handle your perfectionism? I missed the rest. How does he handle me? Was that the question? 
How did he handle your perfectionism when you were more uh, intense about it? Like last week, yeah. So, and <laughs> just to clarify, the one danger when you write a book on recovering from perfection is that people think you're holding yourself up as like exhibit A of the recovery. So don't be misled at all. Hang out at my house for a day or two. You'll, you'll see all my faults and all my perfectionism. And so I am very much a work in progress. And John, my husband, knows it <laughs> probably better than everyone. Uh, I would, you know, I've started to come up with a theory that I can't prove, and you may disagree with me, but I think in one way or another, we all have a little bit of this in us. Um, I think we just do it in different ways. I've talked to so many people since the Heart of Perfection came out who said, well, I never thought I was a perfectionist because my house isn't clean. You can't eat off my kitchen floor. I don't homeschool. I don't, I, don't, I don't work two jobs. I don't get straight A's. I don't do this. I don't do, or I have a sense of humor. I have fun. I'm, you know, I'm not a pain in the neck to be around. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways to be a perfectionist. You may have some areas of your life where you're completely laid back, and then there's something where there's some serious you know, impossible expectations or control. So I would, I would argue that in some way or another, we've all got a little bit of this. And some of us have it in spades where it's very manifest to the world and others, maybe it's more hidden, but sometimes that can do just as much damage. So um, as to my recovery, it's in progress, um, you know, and uh, I think, you know, it's funny because my husband has told me that some of the research I did in the book helped him too in ways that he didn't anticipate. But I definitely think he's got a different personality than me. It helps that we're complimentary. Uh, he is much more laid back about a lot of things than I am. But uh, um, So he's been a great support. And I think he's very happy I wrote the book because it probably makes me slightly, you know, easier to be with if I at least know some of my failings, right? So uh, <laughs> know them, but don't like brood over them. You know, that's the... That's the, uh, that's the ticket, right? So, um, but he's wonderful. He's been a great partner in everything that I do. And he's a great support. And, um, yeah. Okay. I'm and gonna... like I said, if you have something a little less public you want to ask yeah. me. And I... before you uh, applaud wildly, wildly to thank <laughs> Colleen, um, she actually began her talk by thanking all of you for coming, which I also want to, again, say thank you. I know our lives are busy. It's a little chilly out. And I'm really grateful for you uh, to take the time to come and be here tonight. So thank you to each and every one of you for joining us. And Colleen, a special thanks to you. It's a privilege to host you. Thank you for your presence with us. And we have a little gift for you. It's a oh, piece of nice. granite. I hope it's spelled correctly. I think <laughs> Double it is. everything, yeah. yeah. It says, with thanks to Colleen Carroll Campbell for bringing faith to life, we thank you very much. Thank you Indeed. very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.